Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 217 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Holistically Fit, an interview with Brianna Marie. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, this is a really cool story about a woman who's going to be a naturopathic doctor in the next six weeks. And the circuitous route she took to becoming a medical professional was really powerful and interesting. She began as the daughter of a medical doctor. She was on a path to become a medical doctor herself. She decided that that wasn't a path she wanted to be on. She went on a Lyme disease journey and came back to becoming a doctor. Rich, we have people reaching out to us on a daily basis, and many of them say they've been sick for so long and there's no way they can get better. Well, Brianna was sick for over 30 years, and she was on steroids for six different autoimmune diseases during this time. She also had leaking breast implants and many other conditions going on, but today she's healed and in remission and doing great. So Matt, one of the things that I really enjoyed about this story is that Brianna did not want to have a child until she was in remission. And the good news is after a 30-year battle, she's been able to achieve remission and she is now the mother of a baby girl. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Holistically Fit with Brianna Marie. Hey, soon to be Dr. Brianna Marie, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be here today. We are really, really excited to have you on our podcast. We've been uh, we've been following your Instagram page, which is really a beautifully well and well done page. And so we want to thank you for all the contributions you're already making to the community. And uh, I think we should start by talking to our folks about um, how you will be going through a uh, at least a title change and I, I guess somewhat of professional change because uh, you'll be at the end of your training and you'll soon to be. You soon to be called Dr. Brianna Marie rather than just Brianna Marie. So talk to us about that. Exactly. Yes, it's been a long journey and I'm very excited to become a naturopathic doctor that will be happening in December. So just a little over a month from now. Well, that's really, ex- we're really excited to uh, introduce uh, soon to be Dr. Marie to our, uh, our listeners before you were doctors. And so we'll, we'll have to do a follow-up after you, you're uh, allowed to use the title. <laughs> Perfect. So, uh, so uh, Brianna, talk to us about, uh, uh, first of all, your background, where you're from and, uh, and uh, what kinds of things did you do during your childhood to get yourself ready to become a doctor, Brianna Marie? So, you know, my childhood was very busy. We moved around a lot. I'm a Navy brat, so I was never in one place for very long. My father uh, was stationed all over the East Coast. I was born in D.C., and then we moved down to Florida, and then all over in between. So there was a lot of moving around. There was a lot of going from school to school, a lot of trauma in the home. There was just a lot of different things that contributed to everything that made me who I am today. So I had childhood asthma. I had childhood, my father's actually an MD. And so he was a practicing MD when I was a child, he was going through his internship. So he was trying everything that he could do to use his medical knowledge, which happened to be giving us every single medication that he came across, which is not a good thing. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit, Brianna, but let's first talk about what it was like to grow up in the Lyme Belt. You were, you said you had traveled up and down the East Coast during the course of the time that your, uh, your dad was, I guess, being, uh, being assigned or stationed in different places. So right. talk to us about what it was like to be an East Coast gal. An East Coast gal. Well, you know, it was, it was pretty good. I liked it a lot. I really do. I live in Las Vegas now, for those of you that don't know me. And I, I have to say, I'm probably going to move back to the East Coast sometime. I have a little girl now, so I want her to grow up and have different seasons and be around the family. All my family and my husband's family is back there still. 
So it's something that I think we're going to go back to, but yeah, it was fun. It was fun going around, especially being in, in all the different coastal cities that we were in. We lived in Florida for a while. We were in North Carolina for a while. So those are pretty cool places. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about what the educational system was like uh, in the various East Coast cities that you, you were uh, living in? Uh, do you think you received a, a good and solid educational foundation in these different schools that you attended? You know, back then I did. Now I have a completely different viewpoint on it, especially now that I have a child. Um, but I do think that when I moved to Las Vegas, I was 13 when I came here. Um, so I've been here for a long, long time. And I think that, you know, I was really ahead. <laughs> I was really ahead of the curve. Everything that I had learned on the East uh, in all my different uh, schooling was kind of, they were very behind when I came here, just to say okay. it nicely. Okay, so now with the strong East Coast uh, foundation that you had received, uh, talk to us about the types of health classes and science classes you were taking as an East Coast kid. You know, I was so young. It was something that I don't even really remember, um, but I know that we really, my father really impressed upon us that it was so important uh, education and having good grades and, and all of these things. So I really didn't start to pay attention or really have everything absorb, I think, until I was in high school. That okay. was in Vegas. So Brandon, what was your vision for your future when you were a young child, um, either uh, while you were living on the East Coast or after you moved to uh, Las Vegas? Or is it Las Vegas or just Nevada? Las Vegas. Yeah, it's Las Vegas. So I had such a traumatic childhood. I honestly was looking from day to day. I was looking to the next day just to survive. So it was not something where I could think like, hmm, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. I just wanted to survive. Okay. So now um, talk to us about what you knew about ticks and tick diseases first when you were living on the East Coast and whether or not there was any information uh, conveyed to you about ticks and tick diseases when you moved to Las Vegas? There was absolutely no information given to me. Um, none of my doctors knew anything about it. Um, and that's pretty, it's a pretty common theme even now. So you also were the uh, child of a doctor. You said your dad was a medical doctor. Um, were, were there any conversations between you and your dad about ticks and tick diseases and the steps one might take to protect themselves from getting sick from uh, tick vectors? No, not at all. I, I really honestly think that there's such a lack of information. And if he would have known, of course, we would have had the conversation, but he just didn't know. So you never took any steps to protect yourself from ticks or tick diseases? No. So talk to us about when your symptoms began to present. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to look back, obviously, uh, at the time, you didn't know what you were suffering from. But talk to us about when your when your tick disease symptoms first began to present. So I'm going to have to say, way back in childhood, everything um, kind of compounds onto each other. And looking back, knowing what I know now, and all the symptomology and everything that I have learned and and reversed and healed from, it was way back, you know, since maybe four or five years old. Okay, and that's when I can remember. So that's when you were living on the East Coast. Correct. Do you ever recall being bitten by a tick? No, I actually never was bitten by a tick. Okay, so you you well, and let's let's talk about that for a second because you said that with some with a great deal of certainty, and I think that's something that we need to challenge you on right away. Soon to be back. <laughs> 
uh, Brianna Marie. So when you say you were never bitten by a tick, does that mean you never found a tick biting you? Or you're sure you never were bitten by a tick? I've asked my parents both. Um, They do not. They have, they're very vehement about this memory. There's, I think what is really important to know when we are thinking about Lyme disease is that there are so many ways to contract the bacteria, the Babesia, the Borella, and it doesn't have to be a tick bite. It can be spiders, fleas, sexual transmission. It can be so many different things. So me personally, I do not recall. Could it have happened? Of course. Could it have happened in my sleep when I was a child? Of course, you know, I mean, anything's possible. So, but I never found an engorged tick on my body anywhere. Okay. So um, now let's, let's focus on a little bit more on the different ways that you can contract Lyme disease and some of the other co-infections because one of the things that we have to focus on is, is risk, right? And uh, it's, it's one of the propositions that we're developing here at Tick Bootcamp is that the risk of contracting Lyme disease is, is increasing. It's becoming, it's becoming more likely that you, you will contract Lyme disease. And part of the reason why we believe that um, you can, the likelihood of contracting Lyme disease is greater, the risk is increasing, is because there are so many ways that you can contract Lyme disease. So let's focus on that uh, soon-to-be Dr. Brianna Murray. Uh, how many different ways do you believe one can contract Lyme disease? So I'm about to blow everybody's mind right now. We all are born with the bacteria already inside of us. So there are so many increasing toxicities to our overall toxic load that once our body reaches a point where it's in danger zone and you can no longer combat that on your own, or it's polymorphs into a different bacteria that's you know, activated by something that you do, maybe an injection of some sort, maybe a poison in the environment, maybe your water source. So, I mean, I really think that we're going to see the numbers skyrocketing pretty soon. It's going to be a real pandemic. So let's define risk. I recently read a book written by uh, General Stanley McChrystal, and he argued that risk is a formula. It is vulnerability on the... uh, times um, its vulnerability times, oh goodness, say I'm messing up the phone, but it'll, it'll come back to me in a minute, right? So are you arguing that we are increasingly vulnerable and, and, and is that because of the environmental changes or is there something else that you're arguing? Um, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. We are increasingly more vulnerable for things to be activated in, in our bodies and our systems because of the environment, because of everything that we're doing to our bodies, because of the way that we're living our lives. Um, and, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. There's the information that's out there, but it's not readily available to us. And it's suppressed okay. a lot of the time. So let's say with that, Brianna, I'm sorry, it's threat times vulnerability equals risk, right? So let's talk about the threat piece of it first, and then we'll talk about the vulnerability piece of it second. So let's talk about the threat piece. So threat meaning the, the likelihood of us coming in contact with Lyme disease is increasing for a lot of different reasons, meaning the threat is increasing. So talk to us about the different ways that we are threatened with Lyme disease. There's so many different ways. I mean, any kind of bug bites, there are, again, there's you know, spiders, fleas. When I was living in Florida, I was bitten all the time by the little sand fleas that they have there on the beach. There's just 
so many instances where you don't realize, you know, maybe you're sleeping at night and these little tiny spiders are biting you. We have bugs everywhere. Some are microscopic, some you notice, um, their sexual transmission. So my husband's from Wisconsin. There's a ton of, uh, of ticks there. I'm sure at one point, you know, he was, uh, in contact with one, you can get it from your animals, from your beloved dogs and cats. So there's just, you know, a plethora of ways and the bacteria is in every different kind of species. So coming in contact with it is, is going to happen. And it's whether or not your body is at a point where it's weak enough to become susceptible to a severe reaction. All right. So pause there for a second, because I don't want to get the vulnerability yet. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about threats. So you're arguing that Threat number one is that it can be, we can get it congenitally, right? So it's a possibility it'll be, it can be passed on from, from our mom to us, right? right. In Europe. Secondly, it can, we, we, can, we can get uh, Lyme disease through sexual transmission, meaning our partners can pass it on to us. And third, you're saying there are a number of different vectors, ticks being one of them, that can, mm -hmm. that can pass it on to us, right? So that's why the right. threats are increasing, right? Now- right. Now, let's talk about the threat threats increasing for a minute, you know, purely from the standpoint of if more people have Lyme disease, then it's more likely that they'll be able to they'll be able to sexually transmit it to us. Right. Because there's more likely we'll come in contact with it um, sexually. And we're, we know that at least 500,000 people are being diagnosed with uh, Lyme disease per year. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, another big, huge factor people just don't realize parasites. So every single person in the entire world, every animal, if you have a pulse, then you have parasites. So if we're not dealing with those parasites, they actually create exosomes, they eat viruses and they create this bacteria. So they hold onto it in our bodies. If we're not dealing with that. Then we're definitely going to have an increased risk of coming in contact with all these different, you know, Lyme bacteria. Help me with that. So I, I, I would think that would be more on a vulnerability problem, meaning we'd be more vulnerable because we have the parasites in our body and, and therefore the, you know, the terrain it makes us more vulnerable. Are you saying that, Sometimes. that the threat is increased because of the parasites or are you saying that, for example, a tick bite could result in having parasites spit into us, which then makes us more likely to be vulnerable to the, to the bacteria? Help me with that. Well, we have parasites regardless. So when you are bitten by a tick, for example, if they're going to emit this bacteria, then the parasites are going to eat it. We're going to feed off of it. They're going to store it. They're going to multiply. They're going to remultiply. They're going to continue doing that until you deal with it. So everybody wants to treat the specific Lyme bacteria, but if you're not treating the root causes of that, the parasites getting rid of those things, then you're going to have, just have this increasing toxic load. Okay, so now let's talk about let's talk about the vulnerability piece, which I know is what you've been more excited to talk to me about <laughs> than, than the threat piece. So talk to us now, you know, in your in your uh, studies before you became a doctor, now on your on you know you're six weeks away from becoming a doctor. Talk to us about what you've learned about our vulnerability and how that's changing because of environmental factors, nutrition, or any other elements of of our lifestyle that's making us more vulnerable to Lyme disease. I mean, it's literally coming at us from every single different direction. There's so many things that we need to be conscious of. There are radiation risks, not just EMS that everybody hears about and is so popular. There's radium in our water. Um, you know, there's, there's so many different sources of contamination in the water alone, not just that. 
you know, when I work with patients, that is one of the main things that we work on getting the water clean. Um, but there's also, you know, the food, the fake food that everybody is so addicted to. It's really sad. I grew up as a child being addicted to all the sweets, all the different fast foods. And it was something that was easy for my parents to do. They were very young. They didn't really, you know, they didn't have experience. So they just gave us whatever and, and thought that it was good enough. So there's so many different things, not, not to mention the stress that we all go through. And especially, you know, with the last couple of years, the, the stress is increasing for everyone, people losing their jobs, people, you know, having family members that they have lost people, you know, being divided. So the stresses are going to make us a lot more susceptible to everything as well. So Brianna, before we go into that in a little more detail, and I do want to spend a little more time with it. I, I, I want to give our folks a little bit more background on your education because uh, I, I didn't, I didn't fully explore that before we went off yeah, on this really yeah, exciting yeah. thing. So talk to us about where so you went to college. It was and, really um, crazy. Um, when I came to Vegas, I was uh, still in school. So I finished school here. I started at UNLV and I dropped out. I became a model and I was doing really well financially. I traveled all over the world. Um, I was, was just kind of increasing in symptoms and trying to push it down and just trying to power through. Then it got to a point where I could no longer walk. I, my husband was physically carrying me from room to room. I would take the strongest steroids in order to just go to a job and complete that job. And then I would be dead for a week afterwards. It was, it was awful. And then finally I came to a point where I saw so many doctors and you know, nobody had an answer. All they, all the answer was here, take this pill here, take this pill, take this pill for this pill, you know, for the, for the side effects. And I finally said, after my sixth diagnosis of a different autoimmune disease and then Lyme disease, I said, F this, there's gotta be a better way. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, I was already very health-minded or I thought I just wasn't doing what was genetically matched to me. I was working out way too much, um, to combat everything that I was going through and I was eating healthfully what I thought, but I was still eating a lot of inflammatory foods. So that's when I started my journey. I initially started out by becoming a holistic nutritionist and had a lot of success. I only was doing this to help myself. I wasn't, had no plan on working with clients or patients um, and because I had so much success with it, I said, you know what, I'm going to keep learning. I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could. And on that mission kind of blossomed. I had a lot of spiritual awakenings during that time. And I knew that I was, was really having messages from God telling me, you need to share what's going on with you, your experience with all of the rest of the world, anybody that will listen. And so now I help other women. So it's just been really you know, full circle. It's, it's something that is very near and dear to me because there was nobody along my journey to help me and to kind of guide me. And they didn't, you know, I'm aging myself here, but there wasn't all of this social media interaction and information that was readily available when I was first learning about everything. All right. So let's unpack some of what you just shared with us. You said that you went from doctor to doctor and you received six different diagnoses. So in total, between the time that you first started suffering your symptoms and the time where you finally received your Lyme disease diagnosis, how many different doctors did you see? 
I can't even count, honestly. I spent tens of thousands of dollars. That's with insurance. So I don't even know. I saw every kind of doctor. I saw functional doctors. I saw MDs up the butt. I saw, you know, naturopathic doctors, holistic. I saw anybody that I, I saw shaman. I saw anybody that would listen to me and that said that they could help. You said you received six different diagnoses between the time that you first started seeing doctors and the and the time that you finally received your Lyme disease diagnosis. Now, were they misdiagnoses or were they just diagnosing a, an element of your larger challenge? What was, what was the challenge that you were seeing with getting a diagnosis? So it was actually not misdiagnosis. It was all, they were all autoimmune diseases that I was collecting because they had missed it so early on. Had they have found this when I was a child or even a teenager, when I started going to doctors saying, Hey, I've got ABCD, EFG symptoms. And, you know, they're like, Oh, here's a little anti-depression. Here's a little anti-anxiety pill that didn't do anything, but make everything worse. So they weren't misdiagnosed. They were, um, you know, definitely just not getting to the root of the problem. Okay. So now you said that you were going to doctors from your childhood. And in many cases they were giving you pills or some type of medication to manage the symptoms. Um, right. Now that you've been on your, on your journey and you've learned what you've learned, do you believe that masking symptoms is a bad vehicle for practicing medicine because it's taking away from us our ability to read what our body is telling us about what is wrong with us? A hundred thousand percent. It is the absolute backwards way to do things. It doesn't make any kind of sense. Your body is throwing you red flags and it's telling you it's so smart that it tells you when something's wrong. And if you're not listening and you're masking it and putting more poison into the body, into the system, then you're just really, really making it a lot worse and a lot harder on yourself in the long run. So let's talk about how that all built up in you to the point where you finally crashed and your husband had to carry you from room to room. And in order for you to go from one modeling job to another, you had to take weeks off in between different jobs. So talk about how, again, as the child of a doctor who was, I guess, treating you himself or and or referring you to other professionals in his, um, you know, in his discipline, how were your symptoms being, well, what were your symptoms? How are they being evaluated by the doctors and how are they being mistreated by masking the symptoms rather than getting to the root cause? So it started when I was really, really young. I had, I was diagnosed with asthma and this was after I received all of my injections uh, as a, as a baby. And uh, you can see it in my baby book that my mother just brought me over. And of course they didn't know, but it started to collect symptoms where I had severe allergies to everything. I could only eat certain foods. I was in debilitating pain as a child. Why are you in debilitating pain? I mean, I enjoyed pain. It didn't make any sense. Um, I had word recall issues and I was, I would do very well in school, but you know, it was more repetition for me. So I would study a lot, study and read and everything kind of absorbed a little bit easier that way but I was on super strong steroids for the asthma and allergies since I was five years old. And then that continued for 30 years of my life. And of course, you know, they don't really tell you what's going to happen if you're taking these steroids for 30 years, because they're asthma steroids, they're safe for you. They're okay. They're, they even allow you to take them in pregnancy, which is just mind blowing. It's crazy. Okay. So Brandon, let's, let's again, sort of unpack this, this whole sort of 
chain of events that led to this crescendo where you're crashing, right? So uh, you shared with us, and I'm not going to ask you for particular details, but you shared with us that there was a lot of trauma during your childhood, right? So you, you were living in, a, in an emotionally stressful environment. You were, you were beginning to, to show the symptoms of, of Lyme disease, and you were not only being given medicines that would uh, mask the symptoms so that you were not able to read your body, but mm-hmm. you, actually, you were actually living with immunosuppressant uh, medications such as steroids, which are having the impact of suppressing your, your immune system. So, so you, you have Lyme symptoms. They sound like that classic Lyme disease symptoms. You're living in a high stress environment emotionally. You're, you're, um, you're taking steroids, which are suppressing your immune system. And how do you manage all of that for as long as you did before you finally had the crash? You know, honestly, Rich, like I told you, nothing's off limits. So I, by the grace of God, that's the only way that I was able to get through as long as I did before I crashed. There was a lot of physical and emotional abuse in the home and I ended up running away. That's why I came to Las Vegas to live with my mother. My parents had divorced when I was like seven years old. So we, both my sibling and I, we just, you know, we had so much emotional trauma, so much physical trauma that that impacts everything that creates so much more dis-ease in your body, in your system. So you can't fight off that bacteria. So we were talking a little bit before we went through your, your, your educational background and, 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 uh, both in nutrition and in, in medicine generally, we were talking about terrain a little bit, right? So, I mean, if you were if you were going to um, you were going to describe someone who was uh, vulnerable to Lyme disease, is there someone who was more vulnerable to Lyme disease than you, with both having the traumatic childhood that you had and all of the all of the medications that you were taking? I would say, you know we have a bucket, right? Our body is a bucket and we are continuously dumping these toxins and we have little holes that are allow us to kind of let some of that out and detox and let it go naturally. But when we reach that certain limit where the bucket is full and then it's overflowing, then we're really in trouble. So it's the people that have had all of their vaccines. I know it's so taboo to talk about, but everybody that's had their vaccines as a child that contributes to your toxic load. Does it, does it, does it cause it? I don't think so, but it contributes to the toxic load. So pause there for a second. Talk talk to us about how vaccines add to our toxic load and make us more vulnerable to disease. There's so many different aspects to a vaccine. They're injecting, uh, I don't know what you want me to say. If you want me to really just be as open and honest as possible, because Please. it's a taboo, yes, but yes. Um, they're injecting it in aborted fetal cells. They're injecting live animal particles. There are so many particulates and adjuvants and heavy metals and just everything that's in them, live viruses, dead viruses, so many things that we don't need. Okay. And so, so our bodies aren't naturally meant to handle that. Okay. Now you talked a little bit about uh, food choices and, and you said that your parents were feeding you, um, they were feeding you foods 
that were stressing your body. So talk to us about the types of foods you were eating and how those foods were stressing your body and suppressing your immune system or maybe interrupting your immune system. Definitely. So I am Italian and Puerto Rican and we have a lot of Italian food. So lots of pasta, lots of pizzas. Um, and my father was becoming an MD when I was a young, young child. So he was really busy. My mother worked two jobs. They were basically just trying to get through. So they would just feed us whatever. If they had to go through a McDonald's drive through that's what they did. So we ate whatever. And, you know, we kind of had to fend for ourselves sometimes. So whatever was there, we ate it. So it was basically fake food-like substances, very processed, um, very sugary. So a lot of that just contributes to our disease factors here, especially here in the U.S. So let's, let's unpack that, Brianna. So what is the difference between somebody who is eating holistically uh, and, and somebody who's eating processed food? I mean, you, they, they, both, they both have calories and they, and they both have nutritional value. What's the difference between somebody who is, who is eating organically versus somebody who is eating McDonald's? Well, there's so many different levels to that. Um, if you're eating fake processed food, like substances that actually isn't even real food, then you're not getting anything. You're not getting any nutritive value from those foods. Um, if you're going to eat real whole foods that are inorganic, you're still opening yourself up to pesticides like glyphosate. Glyphosate is a real problem here in, in this country. And people don't realize that might not be a gluten sensitivity that they're dealing with. It might be a glyphosate issue that they're dealing with. I see that a lot and in, in myself as well. Um, but when you're eating whole organic grass fed, you know, uh, pasture raised, very thoughtful processed, not processed, but, uh, thoughtfully raised and, and, you know, provided foods, then you're going to have a lot different outcome. Your body is getting what it needs. It's getting the nutrients from the food. And even then you're not getting as much nutrients as your body needs. So there's still things that we can do to support that. Okay. So let me ask this. If I, if I, if I bought an organic, um, carrot and I bought a carrot that was not grown organically, would the nutritional value be different or would there be some stressors associated with the the, um, the, the pesticides or the other ways that the, that the traditional carrot rather than the organic carrot would cause me to have, um, uh, add to my toxic load. Well, the carrot that's not organic is probably going to be GMO genetically modified. So you're going to get less nutritive value from it, but you're also going to absorb less because you have glyphosate or other kind of pesticides that are sprayed all over it to make it, you know, bigger and more beautiful. And, you know, more attracted to the buyer. So you're going to have a lot more trouble assimilating and digesting and breaking down those, those nutrients. And, and, and the, the, the extra work our body has to do is causing stress and the stress is making it less, making us less resilient. Is that it? Is right. That right. Argument? Yeah. Okay. So now let's go back to, let's go back to your experience, right? So you, you, you have this, you have this very toxic environment that you're living in both, both emotionally and, and, um, and uh, uh, nutritionally, and uh, and and how 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 do your symptoms continue to develop to the point where you're functioning uh, through the grace of God, and then you stop functioning? Give us a you know, like what it was like for that crescendo to happen where you finally have this crash and you're being carried from room to room. It was just thing after thing that kept happening. I was getting in car accidents because I had such bad brain fog and I wasn't able to really like focus on what I was doing. I would back out of a spot and boom, I'd get hit because I didn't see the car that was coming. 
You know, there was just so many different instances that were like, hello, wake up. What are you doing? You need to do something about this. And finally it came to a point where I was just in so much agonizing pain. That's what made me not be able to walk. And then when they told me that I had rheumatoid arthritis, I said, you know what, this is ridiculous because they wanted to give me more very strong DMARDs, um, to mitigate those effects so that I could just walk around. And I'm like, okay, well, that seems like a big mistake. I'm not doing it. So I went home. I told my husband, there's gotta be a, a different way. I was really angry. I was super angry. I'm like, I was so pissed at my body. I was so pissed at my father. I was so pissed at the whole medical system, all the doctors, everything that, you know, I had gotten to that point. I'm like, why can nobody help me? I'm spending all, all this money and I shouldn't have to spend out of pocket money to get well. But that's, that's the epiphany that I was coming to. I'm like, all right, you know what? fine. F this. I am not doing this anymore. I'm not going to go the way that they want me to. They obviously don't know what the hell they're doing. So I'm going to go back to school. And I put my, all my resources, I begged, borrowed and put it all in there and maxed out on my credit cards, went back to school. And I'm telling you, it was the best decision I've ever made in my entire life because within a year I was pretty much all my autoimmune diseases were in remission, full remission. Lyme disease was on the way. And I just, just keeps getting better from here. Okay. So Brianna, before you get there, so when did you get diagnosed with Lyme disease and how did you get the diagnosis? So I, I did a lot of different testing um, with different doctors and it was a naturopathic doctor here in town who did a test and, you know, he was kind of telling me it's not worth doing the testing because, and now what I know now it, for me, it really isn't worth doing the testing. It's so expensive. And pretty much if you're not going to, you know, you have to look at the patient, look at their symptoms, look at their history, do assessments. Assessments are a lot better than spending the money on a test. That's not going to be conclusive either way. So anyways, I got a conclusive test with him and the treatment that he recommended, I just wasn't willing to do. So I decided to continue to ignore everybody and do my own thing as I learned more and more in school. So Brianna, talk to us about your comment regarding a clinical diagnosis being better than a laboratory diagnosis via blood work, because many people tell us they suspect Lyme, they have classic Lyme symptoms and, you know, everything fits that picture, but they don't have a positive lab work to prove that. So why is it so taboo for doctors to do a clinical diagnosis for Lyme when the testing is so bad? It's so hard because for doctors, and that's why I never wanted to become one, I actually before I knew what I was going to do, I was in UNLV medical school and I dropped out because I was like, this is the antithesis of everything that I want to do. And it's not going to teach me what I need to know. So it's hard because they're limited on their knowledge on what they're taught. They're also limited by the insurance companies that, you know, hold them hostage. They're limited by the medical teams and the hospitals that they work for. So they can only do what they can do. Um, I, I don't want to say that now I'm not angry at any of the doctors because now I know, I understand that it wasn't something that they were doing on purpose. It's just, this is just the way the system is just broken. Um, but I think for me, because there's so many false negatives and there's so much wrong with the way that we do testing and labs, and that's across the board for every kind of test that there is, um, you know, it really doesn't make any sense. You have to do really in-depth assessments with each different person. And you have to know that every person in life has this bacteria that could potentially, you know, be activated and cause some serious Lyme issues. 
So because Lyme is so prevalent and really it's, it's it, anybody can come down with, with Lyme disease or chronic Lyme disease, what advice would you give somebody who's listening who really believes they have Lyme, but can't get a doctor to listen to them because they can't get a positive test? That's tough because, you know, financially going off of the entire medical system, the conventional medical system, it's, it's hard, you know, but I think that it's really important to start with the things that you can do and that you can control that are not going to be a massive hit to your wallet. You can eat whole real foods, get off the processed crap. Don't do it anymore, but dealing with the parasites, that is going to be, you know, one of the ways that you can start helping yourself, but be very careful. Don't just do these random parasite things that you see on TikTok. That is so sad when I have people coming to me and they're like, oh, I saw this on TikTok and this is what I did. And I drank a bunch of bentonite clay and now I'm really sick. Well, yeah, you're very sick because that's not the way to do things. There's a systematic way to do things, making sure that your body's natural drainage pathways are open first before you even go to that next point. Um, but getting rid of the parasites, knowing that you know, you do have like, these are the things that people were telling me and I didn't want to listen to when I was starting. I'm like, no, I don't have parasites. Are you kidding me? So I, I did like five stool tests and they were all negative. I didn't have anything, but what you don't realize is that there's 2000 plus species of parasites that create and hold on to Lyme bacteria. So the tests only test for maybe like 10 to 15 at the most. How are you going? It's, there's no accuracy. There's no way to really know. It's, it's something where we really need to just be aware of all the different levels of how we need to start peeling that onion layer. So Brianna, let's talk about that a little bit more because so many people in the Lyme community are now thinking about parasites as being a reason why they're not getting better from Lyme disease. And you mentioned that tests aren't accurate for parasites and they, look, they only look at 15 species and there's over 2000 that can harbor or really make Lyme be worse in a patient. So from your perspective, is a test alone an adequate way to explore parasites? And if not, how do you know if you really have parasites that are keeping you sick? Anybody that's listening right now, I want you to put your two fingers, your, your index finger and your other finger, put it on your neck. Do you have a pulse? Yes. Yeah, parasites. <laughs> that's your way to know. <laughs> that's the easiest, cheapest, most efficient way to know. Everybody has parasites. So doing testing, you know, when I first started seeing patients, um, a few years ago, I did a lot of testing lots. Cause I was like, Oh my God, this is the way, you know, I'm going to find all the parasites for all the people we're going to heal, blah, blah, blah. That's not the most accurate way. I think you really need to do assessments, really in-depth assessments, go by their symptoms, physical character traits. There's a lot of different ways that you can know physically, um, just by looking at somebody that they have parasites going on or by their symptomology. You know, if you're not going to the bathroom regularly, if you are really exhausted, if you have restless sleep, if you're waking up in the middle of the night multiple times, um, if you have brain fog, if you have depression, anxiety, I mean, the list goes on and on acne skin, you know, any kind of psoriasis or eczema or any of those things, those are all indications. So as far as the symptoms are concerned, I know a lot of symptoms overlap with Lyme disease for parasites as well. So mm -hmm. what symptoms can people be aware of that are listening that maybe stand out a little bit more differently than Lyme symptoms so they can try to identify if they're really being impacted by parasites from a symptomology standpoint. 
So, you know, it's really difficult because they do all overlap, even the neurological symptoms that we, you know, often deal with because we can have parasites on our brain. People think that, oh, parasites are only in your GI system. They're, they're not. They, you know, migrate all over the body and we have parasites in our lungs. I had a, I had a big issue with that. I had asthma as a child. I had a lot of sinus issues. Um, there was one point in my journey where I was pulling parasites out of my nose. It was pretty disgusting, but you know, that's what it took to get rid of these things and to actually heal. So the, the idea that everything is, is separate is just not the case. It's all interconnected. So are you arguing that anybody who's suffering from chronic Lyme should treat parasites regardless? And it shouldn't be something that am I being impacted by parasites with Lyme? If you have chronic Lyme, you should be addressing parasites as well. A hundred percent. And you also, Brianna said that, that of these 2000 plus species that can create and hold Lyme bacteria that you referred to earlier. So what do you mean by create? Because we know that, that these parasites can actually hold the Lyme spirochetes inside of them as well. But what do you mean parasites can actually create Lyme bacteria too? So when I said that, basically we already have all the bacteria inside of us. So whatever they're eating on and munching on inside of our bodies to, you know, continuously multiply, this is what I mean. They are multiplying and they're creating that within the new, their new, uh, egg sacs. And just, it's, it's, I know it's disgusting everyone that's listening. I'm sorry, but this is just the case. So we're definitely going to come back to talk more about parasites, but I want to circle okay. back to your, your journey. So when you went to the doctor, and you were fortunate enough to have a positive test for Lyme and you knew you had it. You said you didn't want to do the treatment recommended by this doctor. So what was the treatment recommended that you said you knew wasn't right for you? Antibiotics. Okay. So at this point you were now in medical school, you said prior to this, and you were, sounds like you're being trained from a Western perspective, correct? I had dropped out already by that point when I got the diagnosis. And because I knew that all it was, was memorization of medicine for symptom. And that was not what was going to help me because that's already what I had been through for, you know, almost two dozen years or yeah, almost two dozen years. So it was, go ahead. So in a way you were fortunate to have had that epiphany before your diagnosis to avoid some of the damage that could have been done from antibiotics. Yes. It was then it was right around when I got that diagnosis that I was just being pulled in another direction. And I started to learn about holistic living. And for those of you that don't know what that means, holistic, everybody kind of thinks it's like, oh, woo woo. And we're hippies. Holistic just means treating the person as a whole, the mind, body, the spirit, everything is inter- interconnected. And you have to realize that if you have a headache, maybe it's not just your head. It's, it's related to something that you're eating or something that you saw on television that was really disturbing. And, you know, you don't realize the impact of it later on. Everything is connected. So you treat everything as a whole. So as a side note, talk to us about that, because somebody recently shared with me that before they go to bed, they try to watch something that's funny. So they go to bed on a good note. And that really has an impact on the quality of their sleep and the quality of their thought processes while they're sleeping versus watching something maybe scary or very event, you know, action packed before they go to bed. So what are your thoughts on that? Oh my gosh. I, I have an entire academy that I teach, um, my ladies and I, cause I work mainly with women, but I teach them this aspect of it. You know, we become, and we absorb everything that we eat, that we see, that we ingest. And that's just, you know, what we're watching, what we're hearing, the people that we're around, you know, I don't know. I can't remember who said it, but we are who we become, who we are around. 
So it's really, really important. I don't watch anything scary. I did when I was younger and it would physically make me violently ill. I could not watch. I mean, it was, it was awful to watch the exorcist. Please don't watch it. Anyone out there that's listening, don't do it. It's horrible. I do not recommend. Um, but now, you know, I used to watch SVU law and order with my husband all the time, loved it. And I could figure it out by the end and all that. But even that kind of suspense is really not good for your nervous system. When your nervous system is stuck in fight or flight for that long, it, it doesn't know how to, to re-regulate itself, especially if you're dealing with excess Lyme bacteria or any kind of different issue where your body just can't calm down. So for me, I would have, you know, restless sleep for years. It was, it was awful. I couldn't sleep at all. And when you can't sleep, for those of you that know, you're not a nice person. You're not the same person. You're not you. Um, and so, yeah, watching something funny, but I don't even watch that much TV anymore. I'll, I have a limit. If my husband wants to watch TV and catch up, we'll watch, and then we'll turn it off two hours before bed because that really, really affects your cortisol levels, your, your nervous system. So many different things are impacted by watching television. So some people listening may think, how is this discussion going to help me heal from Lyme disease? And they may be thinking, I want to hear about how to kill the bacteria. I don't care about getting quality sleep because I can, that can come down the road. But talk to us about how quality of sleep and your nervous system and all these things you just discussed are important and integral in healing and actually helping your body manage and overcome a bacterial infection or a viral infection or a holistic approach to, to healing your body as a whole. So because I'm so uh, fact driven and was in the beginning, I said, you know what, I'm giving myself three months, I'm going to be completely healed, I'm going to do this exact specific diet, I'm going to cut all these things out, I'm going to take all these different supplements, and that's it. And, and the end of three months, I wasn't, I wasn't healed. So I had to then address all the other aspects of what was affecting it. That was the sleep. That was the stress. That was the trauma resolution. If you're not resolving the traumatic things that you've experienced. And that's maybe even sometimes things that you've suppressed generational trauma that you're not even aware of. There's so many aspects of full healing. Now, am I saying do everything all at once? Definitely not, because I think it's baby steps are going to get you through the process. You can't throw a million things at it and, and not be completely overwhelmed and just quit. Um, it's really, really easy for somebody to say, I want to be better tomorrow. You just have to know that this is a journey. This is not something where you're going to get better tomorrow. You really need to address things systematically. There's a specific way to do it. You're not just going to do, okay, I'm going to go after the parasites. No, you really need to prep your body. You need to prepare for the detox. You need to address the heavy metal toxicities. You need to address the toxins, you know, the environmentals, the plastics, the different things. Um, I had breast implants three different times in my life. And in 2019, I had them removed. It was a personal choice. Do I think that it caused all the illness? No, I think that it contributed to the toxic load. So it's something where you just have to be open to changing every single thing about your life. And not a lot of people are willing or wanting to do that. I get it. I was there too, but you know, you're going to get to a point like I did where you're going to hit rock bottom and you can't walk anymore, or you can no longer function. You can't work anymore. You know, neurologically, you're not able to perform your, your, your work duties, you know, like you went through and it's, you have to make a decision. So Brian, it sounds like when you realized antibiotics weren't right, you kind of just mentioned that you went home and you said, I'm just going to change my diet and my lifestyle a little bit. 
and three months yeah. later, you weren't better, right? But it sounds like you had a lot going on as well. So talk to us about the overlap with some of the things that were contributing to your toxic load and probably preventing you from healing. So for example, your breast implant illness, we know that Crystal Hefner is a huge advocate of breast implant illness, and she couldn't really rebound at all from Lyme until she got an explant surgery and got her breast implants removed. Then she was able to make tangible progress in her healing journey. So it also sounds like you were taking steroids for 30 years too, which obviously weakened your immune system. It's a pressure body's natural ability to really overcome any sort of pathogen. So you had all of these things going on that were preventing you from heal. So clearly diet alone was not going to have a major impact at this time. Correct. So were you still taking steroids when you got diagnosed? I were was. You- I couldn't breathe at all. If I wasn't taking these crazy strong steroids, they were the strongest asthma steroids, the Advair inhalers. I don't know if you guys out there have them or know about them, but they were so damaging. They really, they tear up your thyroid, your adrenals, your pituitary gland. All these things are so important in making sure that your little hormones, your little chemical signals in your body are telling your body what it needs to do. I mean, I would not, I couldn't go more than two months without getting the flu, getting sick. I was sick all the time. Fortunately, I was real, I was able to heal my body with leaking implants in. So I was still able to heal. And that is a testament to how low I was able to get my toxic load. Um, so when people are out there and they're like, well, I'm not going to give this up or that up. I let them know I'm going to meet you where you're at. And you have to remove some things, you know, for me, removing gluten, dairy, soy, and grains was like a no brainer. I don't care. I really honestly doesn't bother me, but my husband chooses not to do that, but he doesn't do other things. You know, he has a very low stress. He has no trauma in his life. There's all these different things that are going to raise your toxic load. So yeah, dealing with the trauma, being a model was fantastic. However, it was very stressful. I, I managed a modeling agency, so it was so stressful. Imagine having you know, 50 different wives that you have to deal with every single day. Um, no, thank you. (laughs) Not a fun job. Okay. And then you like, you want to help everybody and you want to do the best for them and see them make the best decisions, but you can't, you can lead a horse to water. Um, so it was very stressful for me. So me realizing that I needed to just completely get out of that entire, you know, that entire career. And that was what it took. And some people don't want to do that. They want to remain in their high stress jobs because they're making great money. And you have to realize that your health is worth more. And then the money comes anyway, you know? So Brianna, give us, give us now chronologically a little more detail about the things you did. We've talked at a high level about all these things, but when you weren't better after three months of changing your diet. What specific changes did you make then? Is that when you decided you weren't going to model anymore? And what kind of lifestyle changes did you take even beyond the fact of diet at that time? So I, you know, really decided that I was going to do more schooling. That was what I knew that I had to do in order to learn what I needed to do to heal. And in that process, I started to switch out everything in my home that was really toxic. I decided to get rid of all my pots and pans. I decided to get rid of all my cleaning products. I decided to do, you know, natural phthalate, paraben free makeup and, and just make big changes like that, that were really impactful. I changed my entire water system. Um, at first it was filtered. And now that I knew no more about water and the actual health of alive real water, I recommend distilling it and structuring it. There's a big difference. 
so there's so many big changes. I changed the entire air system in my home so that I could remove all the VOCs. You can't remove them all, but really just lessen the impacts. Um, got rid of mold in my home. So many things that contribute. So it was like, it was doing all of those things. And then I started to address the trauma. And when I started to address the trauma, that is when everything kind of shifted in a major, major way. And I was like, holy shit, I am like, wow, I can live my life. I can run marathons if I want to. I really don't want to. That's not my thing. But, you know, like I'm back to, to lifting really heavy and doing all the different activities that I do. And I decided that my body was in a healed enough state for me to go ahead and, and have a baby. That's what I did. I had never planned on having one because I had so much toxicity in my body. And I'm like, it's not fair to another living being that I'm going to create into this toxic environment. So I decided to get pregnant last year and had a beautiful little girl. Congratulations. Thank you. So I, I just want to make an observation. So clearly you're telling us right now that if you have chronic Lyme disease, and we kind of have explored this a lot with other guests, but you're giving us a really clear picture to define this. You're not just sick with Borrelia burgdorferi. You're not just sick with one pathogen. It is so much more when you become chronically ill from Lyme disease. And it's not just treating a single pathogen. It's literally addressing all of these components in your life, resulting in a high toxicity lifestyle. And as you start to address them individually and treat a wide variety of pathogens, that's how you're going to get better as you're telling us. Correct. Yeah. And as I'm doing that and dealing with the trauma, I really dove deep into the detoxing. Um, so detoxification is a fancy made up word, but really just addressing those pathogens and lowering that tox toxicity level within myself. So doing that, supporting my healing through that journey. Um, and then you have to be consistent with it. After I had the baby, I decided, okay, I got to do it again because having a baby changes your entire internal system. And for a lot of women, that's what sets it off. That's what, you know, makes somebody become really ill afterwards when they're postpartum and all their hormones are all over the place. And, you know, their gutter guts are impaired and their adrenals are shot and so many different things that just cause the Lyme bacteria to go crazy. So Brandon, we had a guest tell us, and I want to come back to a lot of the stuff you talk about with detoxing and water and trauma, but we had a guest tell us that after she had her child, she was flooded with, with, I guess, endorphins and chemicals because she was breastfeeding. And it's when she stopped breastfeeding is when she crashed. So would you agree that it's sort of like a false sense of, of almost health after having a child? And then over time, your hormones will decrease. And then you realize how sick you really are and have a crash. Or do you think it's different than that? I think every person is different. But you know, when you're pregnant, your body goes into protective mode. So, you know, my husband had COVID during my pregnancy. I never got sick. I was totally fine. I also do a lot more um, to maintain my health than he does, but, uh, and he never gets sick. So it was really crazy. And I was, I, I knew for sure that I was going to get really sick, but I didn't because I really maintained that level of health. So after the pregnancy, I, I definitely experienced the hormone fluctuations, but I didn't crash because I had already supported myself and already had that healing. But most women don't realize that their guts are so impaired and that they have all this going on. So yeah, it's pretty common <clears throat> afterwards to have all of this kind of be activated. But you didn't crash because you had a strong foundation from all the work you've done previously. Right. So right. I, think, I think other people that aren't doing the foundational work that you have done prior to your pregnancy, if yeah. they are experiencing underlying issues, they can have a crash because their hormones will dip and then they're going to realize how sick they are. It sounds like. 
Right. Not just the hormones, but just everything else that goes into it. I mean, your body completely metamorphosizes into a whole nif- you know, you're, you're shape-shifting into making a human. So everything changes so many different things. We don't realize it. And especially in this culture, we're expected to just snap right back and be right back into the same, you know, position that we were in before we had the baby. And that doesn't happen. So talk to us a little bit more about water, because we've had so many people tell us that drinking tap water, for example, is so bad when you're trying to recover from chronic Lyme disease. We've had, other, we've had other people tell us that filtered water is okay. We've had other people tell us that filtered water is not good and we should be using distilled water, like you told us. And then we've had other people tell us that distilled water is really bad for parasites because it can cause a flare-up of, of parasite kill-off and cause an extreme, I guess, you know, herx or die-off effect from these parasites. So where do you land with the water scenario? And what is your recommendation to our listeners to drink the best type of water, which we all have to do on a daily basis to keep their health in check? So when you're switching from filter to distilled, yes, you will experience a herx because what happens is you're no longer getting the say it's like a a chemical overload that you're getting from your other water. You're no longer getting that. So it's going to come out of you and you may have it, but it shouldn't last very long, maybe a couple months. Um, Most people don't want to wait that long, but you should be working with a practitioner that can help you through that so that the herx is a lot less. And there's so many ways to mitigate those effects and make it very, very, you know, easy to get through versus having extreme reactions. That's never something that I want. I because I'm like a balls to the wall type of a person, I wanted to get better and I wanted that to be it. And I have done everything very aggressively for myself. And now I know that that's not the way to do things. So I guide my patients in a lot more gentle way. And so we're supported the entire way. Do they have herps? Yes, everybody does. Um, especially if you're doing it correctly, but you're supported and you don't have that crazy, uh, reaction and die off. But you know, also structuring your water is pretty important. So making sure that you, for those of you that don't know, when you are restructuring, look up uh, Dr. Emoto, his water experiments were phenomenal. So beautiful. Um, basically when you take water and you speak to it really poorly, tell it things like I hate you, you're disgusting, whatever it becomes really tarnished and ugly and just, you know, almost discolored. And then when you speak to it really beautifully, I love you and you structure it. It's like these beautiful snowflake crystals. So there's videos online that you can see and, and look up on YouTube about that, but it's the same concept. You're structuring the water to make it living alive instead of dead water. So talk to us about the difference between filtered water and distilled water. Cause I know many people that are listening don't really understand the difference be- between tap water, filtered water and distilled water. So as far as, you know, filtered water, I lived that way for so long because I thought that it was the best. And if you look at different things like, um, heavy metals, for example, and what the boiling point of water is, that's basically what filtered water is. They are not destroyed at the boiling point. So you're getting all these other contaminants that are getting through. And a lot of people have, you know, they're, they're still stuck in this, this little, they can't move forward any more than they've already gotten because of their water and they don't realize it. And a lot of people aren't educated on this. So it's pretty easy to miss. So essentially filtered water is still going to be able to hold heavy metals and other, other harmful contaminants. But we don't really think of that when we hear the word filtered water is I think what you're saying. Right, exactly. So I also want to circle back to your discussion about trauma, because you mentioned that was really your like aha or your breakthrough moment after doing a lot of the foundational work 
that when you addressed your trauma, you felt better. So I'm just going to say that I know people listening are going to are going to get defensive and say, how can addressing emotional trauma help me better? I have pathogens. I have all kinds of bad things inside my body, and that's why I'm sick. So I guess the first half of the question is, how would you address those concerns of people saying emotional trauma can't make me that sick? I have a real physiological pathogen problem. And then secondly, how how was was this trauma healing for you so transformational? So there's actual studies that are posted online, and you can see them, of children that are born in traumatic environments or that have experienced trauma that are so many more times, I don't want to misquote, so I don't want to say the exact number, but there are so many more times more likely to develop autoimmune disease, have Lyme disease, have all kinds of different issues health-wise going forward. So, I mean, it's a real serious issue. When you experience a trauma, whether it's big or small, if your body is not able to handle it, if you're stuck already in fight or flight, because, you know, you have a parasite that is promoting that and putting off these little, uh, you know, different kinds of poison enzymes and chemicals in your body, and you're not able to mitigate those effects, then you're going to have cellular damage from that trauma. And if you don't reverse it and start to, to deal with it, then it's going to stay with you and it, it'll just keep you stuck in that fight or flight state. So for me, it took a lot of different experimenting with what works for me. And that's what I, I see in a lot of people, you know, what works for me is not going to work for you. Um, I really had no luck with meditation. It was really difficult for me to calm down. I'm a very type A personality. So I was like, go, 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 go. I can't relax. So for me, meditation was like, eh, whatever. It's not really doing anything. Um, and then I started doing different kinds of energy work and, you know, I did talk therapy for a long time that did nothing for me as well. Um, but then I started to just try different practitioners. You really have to vibe with the practitioner that you're working with. You really have to have some kind of connection and feel very comfortable. If you don't feel comfortable, it's not going to work. Um, and once I started to work with somebody that I was very comfortable with, I noticed that I just felt lighter and lighter and lighter. And I'm like, I don't know if this is working. I guess I'm, I'm going to keep trying it just in case it is. But I did notice that I was able to disconnect from the fight or flight to be very, very peaceful and calm. And that is where your body is able to heal. So I'm like, the more that I can get into that state, the, the more I'm going to do it. So then I was like, all right, I'm going to do this once a week. And I did that for three months, once a week. And I noticed such a dramatic difference that now it's something that I am going to always forever incorporate into my life. We're always going to experience stress and trauma, but it's about how we mitigate it and what we do you know, so especially over the last couple of years, you know, I'm sure everybody has experienced something going on that is not in the norm of their, you know, comfortable settings or situations. So, you know, when I was pregnant, there would be days where I knew that it wasn't just me. So I couldn't just power through something really stressful happened. I decided to cancel my entire day, just relax, take a detox bath, totally chill, do some energy work. And, you know, it really makes a big difference. Brandon, you mentioned that talk therapy really didn't help you much and you did try some energy healing. And then it was finally when you found a practitioner that you bonded with pretty well, that you started to make some progress. So what specifically, or what set of techniques did you do specifically with that practitioner to address your trauma? So for me, the talk therapy just kind of resurfaced all the trauma and never resolved it, never got rid of it for me. I just kind of like had it floating around and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Um, but I met, so I do different techniques with different people. I did NLP therapy, which um, I'm Christian and very in 
and very connected in my faith and spirituality. So I know a lot of people are kind of scared to do energy work. So I do want to say that I think that these are tools that God gives us to get better and to heal. And they're, it's, it's, as long as you're going into it with that in mind, knowing that you are a divine being, nothing's going to, to cross that. But um, having said that, so I work with a Reiki practitioner who does a lot of different energy techniques, um, a lot of different, uh, just it's, it's hard to explain unless you're really there in the moment, but Reiki is amazing. Um, body code has really been helpful for me. Emotion code has been very helpful as well. There's a book called the emotion code. So anybody can go read it and start practicing on themselves. Um, so that's pretty easy and, and a free resource for you, but there's so many different things you can try, um, you know, and it's going to be different for you. What works for, for you and your healing. So Brandy, you mentioned a couple of things that we asked you to elaborate on. So for example, you mentioned NLP, um, body code and emotional code. So what are those things and how do they help you address the trauma? So NLP neuro linguistic programming is kind of like, for me, it's, that's what they call hypnosis. So everybody knows who Tony Robbins is and that's how he started. He stopped people from smoking and he had an amazing success rate. I think it was like 99% or something like that. And that is just by reprogramming those negative thoughts that you have in your mind. And for me, what I specifically saw this practitioner for was the negative thoughts. I, my brain was trained to go right to the negative and always focus in on those negative things. So if you can retrain your brain and say, that's not even right. I don't even know why I'm believing that thought. It's just a thought and just get rid of it. That's what that helps me with. Um, emotion code and body code is a really easy way. If you work with a practitioner, that's very knowledgeable and experienced. It's an easy way for you not to have to rehash everything and to deal with it on a root cause level. So you can get to the root of say you're constipated. So, you know, you tell the practitioner, this is what I want to work on. I'm constipated. I don't want to be constipated anymore. Then they will find a specific place in the body where that is stored, why it's happening, and they'll release it. So again, I just want to emphasize the fact that these were all integral for your healing journey because they contribute to your body remaining sick is what you were saying earlier, correct? Correct. Yes. So now, Talk to us more about detox because you mentioned detox a couple of times and specifically how to address, you know, the pathogens that sort of overtook your body from a weakened immune system from 30 years of steroids and from your breast implant illness, which weakened your immune system. How did you address all of these pathogens that were just sort of running wild in your body? And then how did you, how did you open up your detox pathways and your drainage pathways to be able to properly eliminate the kill off of these pathogens? So you didn't have this, this massive Herx reaction. Well, I did try many, many different things while I was in school and not really knowing what I was doing. So I was basically the guinea pig. I'm always the guinea pig before I try this on anyone. Um, but I tried a lot and I was, like I said, I was doing it too aggressively. So any, any little program that seemed very compelling to me, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try that. That sounds like it's going to work. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And I don't want to name any specific doctors. Um, you know, I don't call anybody out, but they didn't work for me. They actually made things a lot worse because they were not addressing things in a systematic way. They weren't preparing my body, making sure that I was draining properly first, um, just throwing everything at your body and doing everything at once. It's going to make you very, very sick. 
Granny, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but can you give us, you don't have to give us specific doctors, but can you give us some examples of things that you did that you now feel were wrong? So our mm-hmm. listeners don't make those same mistakes. So, you know, were there any specific therapies you tried that you feel were wrong or any, any combination of therapies or even doing something without proper detox, a specific example of a mistake you made that our listeners can avoid by learning from your experience? Yeah. So I did a specific liver protocol because I thought, okay, well, this is great. sounds perfect. I need to detox my liver first. No, it was really a bad idea. It was way too much for my body to handle, especially because my liver bile ducts were closed and not making any bile. And I didn't realize this because I didn't know about it. And that person doesn't inform because they're just doing like a, like a class module thing where they have, you know, a hundred people doing one thing and that's not going to work for everybody, especially those that are chronically ill. I also did a million different parasite cleanses and didn't have much success because I would start killing some parasites. Yes. But you're not mopping up all the stuff afterwards and really focusing on making sure that you're getting all of that out of your body, not reabsorbing everything. Then what's the point? You're just going to continue getting worse. So let's talk a little bit about parasites or more about parasites, because it seems to be sort of the fad right now in the Lyme community. Everybody wants to address parasites. And I think a lot of people are going about it in the wrong way. And there are some people who are finding some really good practitioners and making some great progress with their journey after making some mistakes as well with regard to parasites. But I think the primary focus on parasites is GI related parasites, right? People are, people want to be able to see a parasite in their stool. They want to be able to see the progress and know they're making, they're making some, you know, tangible improvements regarding parasites. But you had mentioned you can have microscopic parasites in your brain. You mentioned that you can have parasites in your nose and you literally had them coming out of your nose. So talk to us about why it's not just GI parasites and how you can have them, you know, throughout many, many different organ systems of your body. Correct. Yeah. You can have them systemically all over your body and every organ system. So there's nothing that is really, you know, the problem is when you're doing a parasite cleanse, you may kill them off. But like I said, if you are not going after everything together and what that means is you need to get rid of what the parasites are feeding off of. So if you're not also getting rid of the heavy metals and the Lyme bacteria and all of those things, then they're going to keep coming back. So you really have to address things systematically. So from a parasite standpoint, do you treat GI parasites differently than let's say brain parasites, than let's say lung parasites, or is it going to be a common protocol for all of the above? No, you know, there, there, there's definitely common protocols, but they're curated to each person, depending on what they're dealing with. Somebody like myself, who's, who dealt with a lot of, you know, respiratory and sinus issues, you know, I definitely did that differently than what I did with my husband who had no symptoms, none at all. But, you know, because you sexually transmit these parasites back and forth, I said, you're doing it. (laughs) That's it. I don't care what you say, you're doing it. Um, And so it was a lot different, my protocol for him. So a lot of people that we've talked to have mentioned they've grown up with childhood asthma and it progressed when they got when they got sick. So talk to us about how you believe parasites or at least your illness in general contributed to your asthma and how you were able to overcome that and make some progress there. Well, there's specific parasites that we know and that have been studied um, extensively, strongyloides that are really creating a lot of, of respiratory issues, a lot of food intolerance issues, a lot of dairy issues specifically. So, you know, those are going to be causing really big problems. There are stealth parasites, so they can shape shift and change and they hide when you're doing these anti-parasitic protocols. 
So they can actually hide in different places. And, you know, very commonly with Lyme bacteria, the spirochetes can change shape and they can go into your synovial fluid and your joints and, and really hide out so that you're not really addressing it and you keep getting worse and worse. So you have to do a full entire body detox. You cannot just treat the parasites. You cannot just treat the Lyme bacteria. You have to get rid of everything. You have to really like clean out the garage. Are we ever going to get rid of all the parasites and bacteria? No, we are primarily made from bacteria and parasites and they they're actually symbiotic with us. They help us because if we really were attacked by everything that they eat and that, that we're exposed to every day, we'd be really sick, all of us. So they do help us in a sense. So you can't get rid of all of them. But what I like to tell my patients is that we're like cleaning out your garage. And then what do you feel when, when your garage is cleaned out, you feel so much better. You walk in there and you're like, hell yeah, this is great. So, you know, it's really something where you have to know you're not going to get rid of every single parasite or every single Lyme bug, but you can do quite a bit by just really addressing everything. So I'm going to ask you to give us some more specific examples. So when you were addressing the Lyme bacteria, when you were addressing heavy metals and you were addressing the parasites, what specific tools or treatments did you use? Were you using primarily herbals? And if so, what type of herbals were you using or protocols or, you know, something like, let's say, um, you know, maybe a cell core product, you know, what were you using to actually treat these different things that you were addressing from a, from a holistic standpoint? Yeah. So I am a cell core practitioner and I do work and use a lot of their products. They have a lot of great herbal tinctures and a lot of different, um, things that help to open your drainage pathways and really, really help to target specific bugs. Um, but I also do infrared sauna. I also, and this is something that I continue doing because we're continuously exposed. And this is something that you have to continue not as aggressively and not as often. Um, but so I'm doing sauna, I'm doing breath work every day. I'm doing meditation. I'm, I'm making sure that I sweat. It's a big thing. You're going to kill, you're going to bind, you're going to sweat it out. Um, and that's, that's really a big problem. I think a lot of people just don't realize they keep reabsorbing things. So they may be killing things off, but they're reabsorbing it. They're not going to the bathroom regularly. They're not, you know, getting rid of that trauma because that's going to be a detox as well. Brian, I recently read on an Instagram post that was pretty aggressively attacked by members of the Lyme community, and I think rightfully so, that it doesn't matter how often you go to the bathroom. If you, if you, if you, you know, go to the bathroom th once every three days, that's okay. I mean, what, what is your view on that? Do you think that's, that's accurate? That's absolutely asinine. I don't know. And I mean, there's, because I just had a baby, I've had all these mom groups and there's so many different things said to these moms by their pediatricians, like, oh, it's totally fine. If the baby's breast breastfed, they don't need to go to the bathroom every day. Yes, they do. When do you know of a, of an animal that doesn't need to go to the bathroom, whatever you're ingesting needs to come out. <laughs> you need to get rid of all the toxins. So if you're not going to the bathroom one to three times a day, there's a problem. Brianna, talk to us a little bit more about breath work, because I think people may be listening and thinking, well, how is that helping kill pathogens? How is that helping you heal? Because we excrete pathogens in our, from our breath. You know, that is a big reason why I am so anti-mask. It is very dangerous for people to be exhaling all of these pathogens and then re-inhaling them because it's stuffed to their face, like a little, you know, germ diaper doesn't make any sense. So it's, there's a lot that you can do with breath work. If you're doing, if you're doing it properly, like Wim Hof, he's fantastic, has amazing free YouTube videos for you guys out there that are listening that you can just go try some. Not if, you're pregnant, not if you're pregnant though. 
So Brianna, speaking of Wim Hof, I know he's a big advocate of doing cold therapy or ice therapy. So what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a helpful technique to sort of reset the nervous system and help your body heal? It depends who you are, where you're at. It can really be um, harmful for some people, especially women that have hormonal issues. Um, that's something that I tried as a fat back, you know, when I was trying to learn about everything and it didn't help me initially. Now I can do it and it's great. It's fantastic. It really does activate the vagal nerve and help your, your nervous system calm down. So for certain people, if you are, you know, at a certain place in your healing journey, then yeah, it's great, but you have to be careful not to exacerbate um, hormonal issues or adrenal problems. So how and why would it cause hormonal problems? So somebody's listening, thinking, I want to try that, but they're a little anxious to, what should they be cautious of for them specifically to maybe not try it if there's something going on with them personally, if that makes sense. If you're a female, if you have thyroid issues that are undiagnosed or diagnosed, I, I would say a hundred percent of patients that come to me, that is a real pandemic. Uh, every single person has an undiagnosed or diagnosed thyroid issue, every single one. So if you have thyroid issues, if you have hormonal issues that you know of, if you've got mood fluctuations, those are just indicators that you can do for free that are going to let you know, maybe I shouldn't try this right now. So Brianna, talk to us about parasites in the brain. So we, Rich and I are very interested in you know, these, these plaques and these parasites that get formed in the brain that are now being associated to Alzheimer's disease and dementia in Lyme patients. So what are your thoughts on the role parasites play in dementia and Alzheimer's and Lyme and that whole factor that that's now being really discussed in the mainstream Lyme community in the last six months or so? That's something that's really near and dear to me because my grandmother, who I am exceptionally close with, I mean, we could feel each other's thoughts from across the country and she'd call me and she'd be like, what's going on? Are you okay? She has dementia and it's progressed pretty rapidly within the last year. And it's just been really, really hard to watch, you know, my family and I go through this. And even though I have all the knowledge that I do, doesn't mean anybody's going to listen to me, even my own family. So it's something where I know that there are things that we can do to get rid of these parasites and pathogens, and it would greatly diminish the risk, if not eliminate um, that's not a lot of work that I've done, but there, um, there's an amazing, amazing book that I'm going to read. I'm going to try to search it here for a second. Let me see if I can find it. It's called the first survivors of Alzheimer's. So that's something I think people should, should listen to or read, but there's a doctor that just really goes into that and starts doing a lot of in-depth work on reversing all of it. So Brianna, one of the things we get is whenever we talk about this topic, I think it's a real trigger warning because people are so sick and they get afraid that they're going to develop dementia or they're going to develop Alzheimer's. And I always respond with, you know, in, in a way, I think we're lucky because we're so woke to this kind of information uh -huh. that we're taking the proper steps to prevent that from developing in us versus people who are potentially taking time bombs. So how would you, how would you, would you agree with that, that people that are really treating properly in the Lyme community should not be afraid of this because they're doing things probably better than anybody else in the general public? Well, first, I think we have to address fear on a frequency level that if you are afraid of something, you are attracting it to you. You have to be very mindful of the, the energies that you're putting out there. And, you know, for a long time, because I know exactly how our spike proteins and cytokines and all these different things are activated when I, when you're just around someone that's been injected, I was very afraid. I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep my daughter away from these people. I'm going to keep everybody, you know, that I'm close to away from these people. 
but that was me being projecting a fear frequency. And that's what I was attracting. So I had a lot of symptoms from that because I attracted that to myself. So as far as, you know, everybody being afraid, no, you should never be afraid because then that's going to attract it to you. If you're taking the right steps and if you are dealing with the Lyme bacteria properly, then yeah, I don't think that you have anything to worry about. Should you be mindful always and forever? So, and now I'm in a remiss state. I have no issues. I have no symptoms. And do I still live the way that I did when I was healing? Yes, mostly. So I still make sure that my, my food is on point. I still make sure that my water, even when I'm traveling is structured and distilled. I make sure that, you know, my stress level is mitigated because we're always going to have stress and make sure that the chemicals and the toxins around me are as low as can be. I don't use plastics. I don't, you know, I don't engage with people that are really negative or bad for me. So there's so many things that you can do. And if you're consistent with that, then you don't have any problems. So let's talk a little bit more about fear. I, Cause I think everybody who's listening to this podcast has or is currently going through a period where they have bouts of fear, whether it's for COVID or whether it's for a, you know, step back in their healing journey or whatever, maybe finances, we know fear can be so damaging to the healing process. So how do you recommend people overcome fear or address that fear head on? And how do you work with your clients to reduce fear to help them move forward in their healing journeys? So when we talk about fear, we have to realize that we are attracting those frequencies. So whatever frequency that you're putting out there, if you put a fear frequency out there, then you're really just going to attract that tenfold. If you're putting out a frequency of love, you're going to attract that tenfold. If you are, you know, and that's what I big thing. Cause I lived most of my life in fear and I was constantly attracting this negative energy and all these negative experiences. And that was was something that for me, spirituality played a big, big role. Once I learned that I was an innate, I was innately able to heal myself. We are divinely made to be able to innately heal. That just changed the whole game to me. So there's nothing. I'm in all these different mom groups and all these different Lyme and autoimmune groups and everybody, you know, if someone mentions that I, you know, say, Hey, I'm in remission. This is what I did. They are like, you're a snake salesman. That's not true. It's impossible. There's no way that you could heal, but there really is. Anything is possible. If you believe it, if you feel it, if you change those belief systems in your mind, if you really connect to whatever spirituality that you want to connect to, you know, for me, it's Christianity. Um, for you, it might be Buddhism. I don't know, but I think that's a big component and I never, ever would have fully healed unless that component was there. So Brianna, before I hand you back over to Rich, I want to ask you one final question because many people, pretty much most people listening to this podcast are really sick and looking for words of encouragement and tips to help them on their journey. So looking back at everything you did to get to the place you are today, to live this basically symptom-free remission state, what advice would you give to those listeners from a standpoint of hope and also from a practical treatment standpoint to help them get to where you are today. There's an amazing documentary called heal H E A L. And it's very, very uplifting, but it basically just hits home that there is no person, no doctor that can tell you how you feel, what your symptoms are, what you have going on. You are the one that is in control of your outcome. You are the one that will dictate your future. So if you decide today 
that no, I'm going to do whatever it takes to heal. That is what's going to happen. You are going to heal just like I did when I said enough is enough. F this. I'm not listening to anybody else. I'm going to listen to my body. I'm going to listen to, to Holy Spirit. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to heal. And I did. So it definitely, the ability is there. You really, it's not easy. If it were, everybody would be completely healthy and, and living happy and free, but it's, it's something where the journey is well, well worth it once you get to, to the promised land. So as far as, you know, the steps that I, that I took to get there, it took so many different missteps, you know, and, and being really hard-headed and, and very stubborn. And I, I really thought that I had to stick with the, the medical providers that were, that I was um, covered by with my insurance. And it wasn't until I said, all right, fine, I'm going to go outside my network. I'm going to go to alternative therapists. I'm going to, you know, continue investing in my health in many different ways. And that's when the, the true healing started. So Brianna, uh, before we, we leave this portion of the podcast, we're discussing your achievements. I'd like you to talk to us about um, what types of resources you use to be successful, meaning were there websites, were there support groups, were there books that you were reading? Can you give us a list of some of the resources you'd recommend to our listeners that you would use that allowed you to succeed on your journey? You know, a lot of it was intuition. A lot of it was me asking for guidance and prayer and receiving, you know, kind of divine guidance in that way, leading me to one resource or another. There are a lot of great practitioners that are out there. Dr. Jess Petros um, on Instagram is great to follow. She always has amazing information and somebody that I really look up to. She's also a cell core practitioner. Um, so I, I listened a lot to her while I was in school and I worked with a lot of my professors as I was going through things, especially as they saw me being really aggressive in my treatment. And one specifically was like, Whoa, let me help you out and just slow down a little bit. We'll do one thing at a time. Um, so I really think that there's not any major resources, but you have to just go with your intuition. If you are going to work with a practitioner, you really have to get a feel for them, make sure that they are going to work with you. Not everybody's going to work well with everybody else. So you really need to make sure that you are interviewing them. So Brandon, you, you talked a lot about the different practitioners that you worked with and essentially building a team. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners about how they can build their healing team? Yeah, I think that to, to believe that it's going to take one person is, is pretty silly. It's to take a team of people, meaning that, you know, my specialty is functional, holistic and naturopathic medicine and really resolving chronic illness symptoms, but I don't deal with trauma release. So you're going to have to go to another practitioner for that. You're going to have to go to another practitioner for, you know, many different things. And I think it's a combination of all of that. And if they want to work together, that's so fantastic. There are a lot of open-minded practitioners out there that don't know and are willing to learn more. I have a couple patients that I work with, um, a couple that are pregnant right now and their OBs are definitely open to learning more, you know, and some of them are not, but I think having that collaborative effort is really important. Brandon, one of the things we've observed in our podcast is that the people who are successful in healing are generally people who pivot 
from one modality to another. So do you have any recommendations about when someone should pivot, uh, meaning they've gotten all the benefit they can out of a particular modality, so they're not leaving too early, we don't want you to bounce from place to place, but also knowing when it's time to move on to another modality of care. Yeah, what I see more often is people bouncing from place to place without giving it a full opportunity. And, you know, a lot of people come to me and they're like, well, I'm not seeing any changes, but they're not doing all the things that I'm asking them to do. So if you're doing all of the things and you're really being honest with yourself and you've changed your diet, you've changed your lifestyle, you're doing meditations, you're praying, whatever you want to do. Um, if you're doing all those things, taking the herbs and addressing parasites, addressing, addressing pathogens, and you know, it's, it's time to pivot when you're stuck, when you're not getting any further. So your, your recommendation is to recognize that you have to give the practitioner, um, your entire effort. And then at some point, if you plateau, then it's time to move on. I wouldn't even, it depends on the practitioner that you're working with. If they are limited in their knowledge, then yes. But me as a practitioner, if I have somebody that's plateaued, we will add in complementary therapies. And once we do that and we kind of build, like I said, like multiply their healing efforts, then it just, they break, they break through that stuck. So Brandon, now talk to us about the transformative effect that this journey has had on you. Meaning as you were working on your healing, as you were working on getting better, you've become transformed almost back to something that you started with. So talk to us about the transformative nature of this journey. So I I would say that it was definitely a transformation into something that I didn't start with. It's something so much better than I could have even imagined because the person that I was before was like a shell of what I am now. Now I have this, you know, divine connection and ability to really not live in fear. And, you know, if I have a system issue, I listen to myself, I listen to my body and I make whatever changes need to be made. Talk to us about how first you were transformed educationally, because you went from being somebody who was, who was, in a traditional educational setting and you left that setting, but you knew you had to come back to education in order to be able to heal yourself. And then of course, bring that to other people. So talk to us about how you bounce from being in a traditional educational setting, leaving that setting, and then coming back to that setting and how it was your journey with Lyme disease that brought you back. I just knew that I had to do that. I had to learn, but I didn't know where that was going to lead me. So for me, it was just experience. I met a few different people that were in, um, the professions that I'm going into now or that I'm in already. And, uh, it was, it was that, and, and just kind of being divinely guided to that way. Now you talked about your emotional transformation as well, and how it was important for you to go through an emotional transformation. Let's talk about the emotional transformation and, and how you made the decision to utilize the tools you use to go through your emotional transformation? As far as the emotional transformation, I really, it was just throughout the entire process. I really took the time to make sure that I was supporting, you know, myself and my needs. And I was always a person that put everybody else first and never said no to anyone. And emotionally, that's really damaging to yourself. You really have to put yourself first, especially when you're going through this healing process. So that was a big aspect of it. 
Now, were you putting everyone else before you because you were in fight or flight and you were fawning? Is that what was happening? Pretty much. I mean, it was like you get a little bit of a high when you help somebody and you feel really good for a minute, but then it takes so much energy out of you and you're just completely drained. So it's not something that you can keep up consistently. So now talk to us about your spiritual transformation, because you said you grew up as the child of an atheist and you ultimately uh, went through a conversion and became a Christian. So how did that happen and why was that an important part of your healing journey? As a child of an atheist, you know, we were raised and we were taught that anybody that had religious beliefs was stupid and, and uneducated, didn't know what they were talking about, didn't know about real life. So for me, that's what I believed. When you were a child, you have no choice but to believe what your parents tell you, right? So as I, you know, became a young adult and into adulthood, and the rest of my family was very, very religious. So you know, but when it's your father and you've got that father daughter relationship, you want to make him proud. You want to believe him and trust everything that he says. So it was just all the different experiences that kind of led me to, to know that that was not correct and that there was something else out there. There was a lot of unexplained things that happened and showed me that definitely, you know, God is real and spirit is within all of us. And, you know, that, that really just propelled me over the last few years, mainly to kind of just change my whole outlook. Brianna, I'd like, I'd like to learn more about how that helped you on your healing journey, because I'm not asking you these questions because we want to tell anyone what they should believe. That's not right. right. This podcast, but I certainly want you to talk about why um, connecting spiritually was important for you to heal and without it uh you don't again talk about whether or not you believed you would have been successful in healing had you not uh connected spiritually i really don't think that i would have been fully successful i would have gotten you know a certain amount away and then been stuck like i was talking about before and it maybe wasn't necessarily the practitioner which was myself <laughs> but it was just the fact that i did not know spiritually where I was, I was lost. So when I started to implement, um, different belief systems and really know that you are part of something greater and bigger than yourself, that's when things started to shift for me. And was it something, was the shift happening because you went from being fearful to being faithful? And as a result of being faithful, part of what you were doing was attractive, attracting different types of energy or projecting different kinds of energy. And was part of it also getting you out of the fight or flight mode so that you can be in a healing mode? I definitely think so. I think that those are both really big components of it. So now talk to us about now your professional transformation, because you went from being a, um, somebody who was in the healing professions, and then you decided that that was not going to be proper for you. And you dropped out of uh, UNLV, you became a model and you were modeling successfully some period of time, in fact, running a modeling agency. And then you came back to the healing modalities first for yourself. And now you're treating patients and you're soon to, you're soon to be a, uh, a uh, naturopathic doctor uh, six weeks away. So talk to Yeah, what's really funny is that initially, the very first time that I was at UNLV, um, I was, my major was psychology. So, you know, it's like, we always do things to try to figure ourselves out. 
And then I was just making so much money and I was happy at the time doing modeling until I wasn't until all of the negativity and all the different uh, things that come with that, seeing all the different girls being taken advantage of uh, just so many different aspects of it that I did not like. Um, and that were, that's what really changed me and made me know that I had to just be completely different than I was before. And in, uh, and you had to focus on something other than yourself, right? And you, you were right. being, being focusing on yourself and, and focusing on your physical appearance to now, uh, after healing yourself, now focusing on other people and helping them to heal. So talk to us about that part of your transformation and how, uh, helping other people brought to you much more joy than focusing on yourself and your appearance. Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, for so many years, I was, I was still trying to help people, but in just the wrong way and the wrong people, the people that didn't want to be helped, the people that weren't asking for it. And, uh, and that was throughout, that's why I started a modeling agency so that I could help everybody, you know, better their futures and save their money and invest properly and things like that. But, you know, as far as when I healed and I knew that, this information is just not readily accessible to everybody. That's when I knew I had to scream it from the rooftops and share it with everybody that I could. So now let me ask you the last question we ask everyone on the Take Boot Camp podcast. You've been really generous with your time and I know you have to get back to your baby. So yes. talk to us about if God forbid, uh, after you finish this podcast, uh, your husband, who was so wonderful to you through this whole journey, including carrying you from room to room at one stage in your uh, in your healing journey. Um, oh yeah. What if he came in? Had, what What if your husband came into your room after after this podcast and he had a tick biting him on his arm? What would you recommend that he do so he wouldn't have to go on a Lyme disease journey? I would immediately uh, put him on a protocol where he would be binding the toxins and getting rid of the bacteria. I would use um, silver psyllin, which is a colloidal silver. And I would start, cause that's, you know, it's an antibiotic, antiseptic, antiviral, uh, so many great properties, but I would start him on a protocol immediately. And would that protocol be an oral protocol or would it be something that you would use topically? I would do both. I would use the um, silver psyllin orally and topically. I would also use some cell core products and tinctures that they have topically as well as orally, just to make sure that we give it the one-two punch and we're not worried about anything, you know, happening later on. Dr. Brianna Marie, or soon to be Dr. Uh, Brianna Marie, we can't thank you enough for joining the Tick Boot Camp podcast and sharing so much of your knowledge with our listeners. It was so wonderful, you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. I hope that I've been able to help at least one person out there listening. And, you know, I love your mission and being able to contribute has been just so great. Thank you so much. Brianna, can you share with our listeners where they can get in touch with you if they'd like to work with you? Yes, I am very active on Instagram, although I may be deleted any day now by the Facebook gods. So you never know, but I'm at Holistically Fit Mama, M-O-M-M-A, and at Holistically Fit Babe, B-A-B-E. Um, you can also just email me. It's Brianna Marie, B-R-I-A-N-N-A-M-A-R-I-E-H-H-F-C at gmail.com. And I have a website that is holisticallyfitbabes.com slash success. Thank you for listening to the Tech Bootcamp interview with our guest, Brianna Marie. To our listeners, we have a call to action. 
First, if you'd like to learn more about Brianna Marie, please visit our Instagram pages at Holistically Fit Mama or Holistically Fit Babe. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of our post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any improvements or any input you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get our automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you, as always, for listening.